Patrick McGinnis, 10% entrepreneur, <laughs> friend, loyal, loyal trustee, hero. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I just said that to Patrick. <laughs> okay, ready? <clears throat> Five to Nine is a podcast for the side hustle generation. For those who make their bread in a nine to five job and fulfill their dream in a five to nine hustle. For the moonlighting culture. For those who want more. We sit down with inspiring people for a conversation on how they fulfill their passions with creative projects. And why they do what they do. Let's, Let's jump, jump in. Five to nine. Five to nine. In this episode of 5 to 9, we talk with Patrick McGinnis, the author of The 10% Entrepreneur. After attending Harvard Business School and working on Wall Street, Patrick had a rude awakening when the market crashed and it made him rethink the way he viewed his career. The 10% Entrepreneur is a way of life that allows you to have the stability of a day job with the excitement of a startup. Whoa! Yeah, win-win. Through his experiences as a 10% entrepreneur, Patrick has found fulfillment and built a diverse portfolio of investments in new ventures all over the world. We talked about his journey from Wall Street to author. What he calls Entrepreneurship Inc. The importance of taking ownership of your entrepreneurial endeavors. How he thinks the best workforce should be and will be made out of 10% entrepreneurs. Whether entrepreneurs are born or made. The four main resources to consider when you're thinking about how to use your five to nine time. Time to learn a thing or two. Woo! So thank you, Patrick, for being here. Before we dive into anything, I want to talk about how Patrick apparently coined the term FOMO. We did some research on you, and according to Wikipedia, FOMO is also the runner-up of the 2014 Word of the Year. So congratulations! What? What, what, <laughs> how did it happen? What is this? Like, who, who are you? What is this? Yeah. So this is one of the, I think you'll find in life, what I've at least learned as, as I've kind of gotten older is that life gives you little gifts and presents and surprises along the way. And this was a complete and total surprise. And this, um, I'm still sort of in shock at how this all went down. But basically what happened was when I was a business school student at Harvard, I noticed that I mean, I'd lived in New York City, which is a land of FOMO, but this was pre-social media, okay? This was the days of an early friend, Friendster accounts, if you even know what that means. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We, we know Friendster. Okay, good. So anybody MySpace. who's listening, go check out Friendster. It was like Facebook, <laughs> except not just sort of first generation. You would have like 72 friends and feel like you were extraordinarily popular. And so I was in business school and I realized that nobody would, would sort of commit to anything. Everybody was overscheduled. And I, and, I, and I also noticed that I was constantly dashing from one place to another in Boston. So I, I thought to myself, this is very strange because I went from this life of working pretty hard in New York and having pretty set life to all of a sudden finding myself going to five, six, seven, eight things a night. And I realized that I was never saying no and none of my friends were saying no and that there was this fear of missing out or what I call FOMO. And that at the same time, there was this other thing called FOBO or fear of a better option, which is the idea that you mm. would never actually commit to anything. And you would say, oh, yeah, like dinner, your birthday dinner is on Saturday night. Okay, great. I'll just, you know, let me text you. Actually, this is pre-texting as well. So let me call you or let me just let show me just, up or something. Yeah. Um and so that was the that was what I noticed. And then my friends and I started using this term a lot. 
And I realized that this was something new and that somebody needed to write it down. And at the time, I was not much of a writer, but I wrote an article for our school newspaper and it was published in May of 2004 and it went viral, as viral as things could go at the Harvard Business School campus. (laughs) And that was it. And I didn't think much of it. And then 10 years later, I got a call from a reporter called Ben Schreckinger, who was working for Boston Magazine. And Ben is now blown up uh, because he was the first reporter at Politico to cover Donald Trump. So he has been yelled at by Donald Trump by name. Um, so he is, you know, complete, he is part of the story too. I guess we, you, the FOMO brought everybody some, some good things in life, but, but he wrote, an, he called me up and he said, I'm writing an article about FOMO. I've traced it back to this article you wrote. Would you be willing to talk about it? And I just happened to be in Boston for my 10 year reunion. So we got together, we talked about it. He interviewed a bunch of other people, including a friend of mine who had actually hosted, um, she had sublet her apartment to Mark Zuckerberg the summer of 2003 when he was developing Facebook. And he wrote this amazing article about how FOMO was born in the sort of Harvard, Cambridge. It was basically um, galvanized or weaponized by social media that was developed at the same time and that it had gone worldwide. And so he published that article. And I remember I was on the tarmac in Buenos Aires, tarmac on, in Buenos Aires on a plane taking off. And I got a copy of the article and I read it and I'd never done any press before. And I was terrified that somehow it would be negative. I read it about 14 times by the time I landed. And then by the time I got to the States, it already started spreading all over the internet. And that was the beginning of this kind of big adventure with FOMO that happened. That's wow. so interesting. Thank you, Patrick, for creating FOMO. Because <laughs> I, Are you sure that's a good thing? I'm not uh, entirely sure. <laughs> it puts, I think it puts a, a word or like a, an acronym to something that a lot of people have felt for a long time anyway, right? Runner up to word of the year in 2014. <laughs> what one? Do you know? I, uh, I forgot know. What, it was probably uh, selfie. Probably uh, selfie. No, it's just hashtag basic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So today we are here to talk about your book. We have it here. The 10% Entrepreneur. So both John and I read it before this session. And I have to say, I absolutely love it. Yeah. And throughout reading the book, I was just like nodding the whole time. Because <laughs> just like a lot of my thoughts written out in words and put on such in, in a way that's really, that's really nicely. And I love all your different analogies. So we're going to talk about that today. So um, we know that you've had a pretty, you know, successful linear standard path in the past. And earlier on in your career, you spent a decade on Wall Street at AIG. And you also mentioned that in your book, during the economic crisis, this gives you the epiphany to create the 10% entrepreneur. Can you tell us about that journey to our listeners and how you got there? Sure. So, I was definitely a very nine to five standard. I mean, nine to whatever. I mean, it's New York City and finance. So it, nine to the, eight. the five goes till eight, nine, 10, 11. But I definitely had was on the treadmill, as it were. And I was very happy to be there. So I came out of college at Georgetown. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had some ideas, uh, but none of them were particularly um, well-formed. And I noticed that everybody that I respected and that I thought was smart that I was at college with was going to um, Wall Street. And I also heard how much people got paid. And I realized that basically my first year out of college, I could make more than my dad ever made which was crazy to me. And definitely I was, I was greed driven at that point. And Mm. I also sort of justified with the fact that there was a very good training program, 
But I was very afraid of Wall Street because I didn't know if I could handle the lifestyle and I had zero idea what these people did. In fact, when I started working, I had no idea what I would be doing for the next two years. So it was kind of a gamble, but I'm pretty good at just sort of jumping into things. So I did that. It was great. I worked at JP Morgan in the beginning and, and I really loved Latin America because I'd lived there in college. So this allowed me to work with Latin America and I did that for two years and then I um, – I, I got very lucky and got moved into the venture capital group. And so I got to actually partake in all of the first internet boom in Latin America in 2000, 2001, 2002. Then I went to Harvard Business School, which was very much what people with FOMO do. They, they go do things like that. And mm -hmm. I loved it. It was a great experience. And then I went to AIG and I was there doing international investing and similar stuff. And then 2008 came, the company blew up. I owned stock in the company that fell 97%. Basically, we had protesters outside of our building, and I realized for the first time in my life that this very stable path that I thought existed for me was a complete and total sham, that in fact, um, there is no stability, and it completely rocked my world. I basically fell into depression. I had a mm. physical, uh, a bunch of physical ailments. I thought I had mono. I was like, didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. I was angry with everybody. And I was basically at a loss of what to do next. And so that was when I needed to, to step back and figure out a different path. And that was, that was a huge life event for me. And then what did you do uh, when you were, when you fell into that depression state? Well, I, I decided to do um, conscientious objection. Which, oh, tell us about that. <laughs> which means I basically looked at my savings account and I made a plan to quit. I thought to myself, well, I've got some savings here and I don't have to work for a little bit, um, for a bit of time. Why don't I just take a break? And so I, I made up this whole plan to quit. And I actually quit three different times. I quit my job and every time they would offer me some sort of carrot to stay on and I would basically take that carrot and negotiate some holiday vacation time on top of that. And I did that for about uh, nine months. And then I finally left and I took a year off. And I did, I actually thought I would maybe take a couple months off, but my brother, who's a jazz musician here in New York, challenged me to spend six months getting up every day, not knowing what I was going to do that day. Hmm. And that was the way I had, that was sort of my methodology to deprogram myself from this corporate treadmill, was that I had lived such a highly scheduled, highly structured life that doing the opposite and acting as if I was like a painter or something, and I was just going to get up and sort of see where the day took me. Not that painters don't have structured lives, some of them, but really try to kind of break free from the schedule and from this expectation of what I was supposed to be doing. When I did that, actually, it totally opened my mind to maybe doing new things. And, and then that led me into the starting to think about 10% entrepreneur and things like that. Mm, I liked how I really like how you force yourself to really change a routine. Um, one of the past episodes we talked about was that whenever you feel stuck, it's so important to change up your routine. It doesn't matter whether it's something big or small. And I think that for you, just changing kind of the concept of how you approach every single day totally gave you this epiphany to create the 10% entrepreneur. Yes. Well, you know what's interesting about that? And I don't know if you guys have ever quit a job or anybody here listening has quit a job, but when you quit a job, you have, it's kind of like the stages of grief in a sense that you have this first day, except it's opposite because, mm -hmm. you know, because you have euphoria. So I remember quitting my job and I would, I would have several times a day, this feeling of complete and total euphoria and well-being. 
that I had taken control, that I was my own man, as it were, and that I had this freedom. And that lasts actually quite a while until then you start realizing, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not making any money or you go meet up with some friends and they're doing some cool stuff in your career and you're sort of working out four hours a day and that kind of stuff. And so it actually shifts pretty quickly to a point where you start to think, my God, what am I doing with my life? And I think that was part of what led me to start thinking about 10% was this feeling that I had built a career that was reputable. I, I felt confident in my abilities and I didn't want to just sort of like spend four hours a day working out for the rest of my life or until I just got another job and went back into the treadmill. I needed to find a way to actually take control and create something new that was completely different that was based on what I needed. Um, I really, I did eat, what I call eat, pray, love, eat, drink, love. I went to Europe. <laughs> I, I had watched the movie Vicky Cristina Barcelona, so I moved to Spain um, <laughs> because I speak Spanish and I'd always wanted to live in Barcelona. And I had stayed on a couple of boards of directors of companies that I had invested in in my PE days. So I had a little cash flow coming in and that was, that was good. Uh, but I then started looking for a job. I was completely convinced I would go back and work in another big company. And I started meeting with companies, but something had changed in me where I just really, my bar, my standard for what I was going to be doing going forward really was much higher. And I had very little faith in the organizations that I talked to, to be able to provide me with the kinds of things that had failed me in the past. So I just sort of was like, it's sort of like if you've been burned, you just, you have a, a much, you're a little bit gun shy. And so that was where I, where I came at things from. And then at some point I thought to myself, you know, I should probably start working again. You know, what are the things that I enjoy doing? And I started meeting with everybody I knew and, and I got these jobs working with the World Bank or other people like that. But I always viewed them as consulting gigs with, um, with the idea that it wasn't necessarily that I was building anything that is a company, right? Because at the end of the day, I have a client, I'm almost like a member of their team, but I'm external. And I still really feel that way. I don't sort of claim that Diego Advisors is this great entrepreneurial project because it really is me and a couple of people that work with me. And I haven't really decided if I want to, what I want to do with it. I, you know, I certainly have the option, but what I did realize, and this was kind of my big aha moment, was that in doing this, it was kind of like being a freelancer, really. And what I realized was that I didn't have any upside because I had come from the world of investing where you own the carry or you have a share of everything you invest. And here I was working. And if I didn't work a day or if I took a day off or a month off or if I didn't have a project, I was making no money and I wasn't building anything for the future. And so that was the impetus, that desire to actually own part of something and be building something that would exist in 5, 10, 20 years that I could actually sell to somebody. That's what got me started thinking about, okay, well, how can I get involved in projects as an owner um, outside of what I'm doing during my day job? So you talk a lot about ownership in your book, about how you will have to, in order to be a 10% entrepreneur, you should own the projects that you work on. So if you don't own the things that you work on, say you consult with other people, does it mean that you're not a 10% entrepreneur? Yes, it means so there's nothing I, I certainly don't have any beef or or I don't sort of have anything negative with freelancing or doing something that isn't that you can't own and sell. Mm -hmm. There's, for example, uh, if you um, you make crafts and sell them at a craft fair on the weekend, that would be a side hustle. Um, but that may not be a 10 percent entrepreneurship situation mm -hmm. because it may be that you never actually build something that you could potentially sell or you could scale or you could have other employees and where the equity value of what you're building has value. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that is a great way to get going. But my advice to everybody is 
take what you're doing and then dream bigger and think about how you can create something where you are an owner of something that can survive you because um, that's where you make the true financial impact in your life. Being an employee, in a sense, you're almost almost an employee of your of your own when you do things like that. Um, being an owner of something that can live and breathe beyond you, that's where real wealth creation happens. And so if that's your aspiration and that's where you want to have the impact for yourself and for others, then you need to start thinking about how you build something that you can be an owner of. In, in your book, you talk about kind of playing to your strengths and um, in building that resource and telling your own story, do you find that ownership allows you to tell what your strengths are in that way? Because it's something that I think a lot of people we, we speak with have trouble with is like, we, we've, we've seen identity as a part of the issue of when they do multiple projects or are involved in a lot of different things. Telling that story is pretty tough when they're like, oh, I do this and I do that and I do this and I have no idea how to explain what I care about. Um, but you had this really interesting way of putting that together and saying like, this is what my strengths are. And by the way, this one's interesting to you. Yes. Is that is that where ownership comes a part of that? Or like, Working towards this ownership is the only thing you'll end up really wanting to talk about anyway. I love that, the way you put that, because you sort of crystallized something I've been trying to figure out for seven years. So, <laughs> so uh, thank you. Um, here's what happened. Here's why I wrote The Playing to Your Strengths, which is chapter six of the book. It's because, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, and a lot of you who are doing side hustles, I can guarantee you've heard this before. People don't take you seriously. And part of the reason why they don't take you seriously is because you don't know how to explain yourself. Mm -hmm. I went through several years of going, running into, you know, you run into your college roommate on the street and they're like, what are you doing? And you're trying to explain to them what it is you're doing. And you, it's all your fault because you cannot explain what the heck you're up to. And I've had many a friend say to me until the book came out and until it crystallized this whole methodology and then it looked sort of you know, organized, people were like, what do you do? <laughs> I have that all the time. And I think that is something that that is um, increasingly common in this kind of post-job age that we live in. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, right? Because frankly, I would rather be more than just my day job. I, you know, if I worked at IBM as a salesperson, which is a very good job, and that's all people knew me for, that would probably be that I would have very little chance for self-actualization there to be sort of metaphysical. And so... I think when you get to the ownership question, it's a couple of different things. It's what you said about it's identifying what you want to do and that what you want to be known for, and then directing that towards economic activities that can actually be impactful on your entire life. It's also about ownership in like a more of a intellectual or like philosophical sense. Like what, you know, what's the little patch of earth that I'm going to own in this world um, outside of just what is my day job? But like, what is, you know, if, if I, I like to think about for me, like, what do I do? What, what is my strength? It's like connecting people, capital, and ideas across the world. I mean, it sounds kind of heady, but I, that, I know what that is now. And so I don't spend time on stuff that doesn't have to do with that. And it's really helped me to be able to feel confident telling people what I do and not worrying or, or, or you know, whether they don't quite get it. And frankly, people get it now because I'm much better myself at explaining what I do. Mm. So coincidentally, before reading this book, I was reading Seth Godin's Lynchpin, 
And he mentioned that it's also about kind of the different, the new generation and new ideology of what how we view work. And he mentioned that in our parents' generation, in our parents' parents' generation, whether you're working at a factory or you have a white collar job, you need to follow the system to rise through the ranks. And these days there's a new system in place and you have to be creative to hack it at work. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on why there is such a shift in attitude and behavior. It's a great question. And one that I have been trying to figure out how to explain to companies, because one of the things that I notice with large corporations is they're some of them, not all of them, thank God, but some of the people are intimidated by 10% entrepreneurship. And people are sort of like, um, they are uncomfortable with their employees doing things outside of their day job or having side hustles, even though 40% of millennials are doing so, right? And so that is a really interesting dynamic. Is you, It's kind of like going to a shopping mall these days. When you go to the shopping mall and there's like half of the stores are empty and the other half are about to close and they aren't changing their business model. Mm-hmm. And you sort of scratch your head. And I was reading, I've been reading all these articles. I don't know if you've seen it, Pay Less Shoes. And yeah, they're not doing great. Like really good right something now. Something or other, Bebe, all these companies that, that have been around forever are all closing down. And that's because these companies are not willing to live in the reality that is today's job market. And I think large corporations, oftentimes, they know they need to change. They don't know how to change. They don't know how to tell their employees how to change. And so it it becomes a bottom-up thing where employees themselves figure out how to do this and the ones who do succeed and the ones who don't, don't. But whenever there is a kind of a seismic shift in operating models, business models, and technology, and all the things that we're watching today, it takes many years for those things to settle out. And I think that's what we're living today is we're living in a situation where Yes, some people are putting are the canary in the coal mine and some people are figuring these things out. And companies like Google, um, I love Google because I think Google is a is full of people that are 10% entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and they have their own concept around that. But those companies have become disruptors and incredibly valuable because they have created a culture in which that bottoms-up approach can actually flourish. But everybody else um, has not. And so that where this all takes us, I think that's the really interesting question. Where... Um, you look at the retail stats. I think it's a great analogy for corporate America. If you look at the numbers, you know, the store closings were and the jobs lost were sort of like bumping along, bumping along. And then in the last three months, there's been this tipping point and there's been this huge change in employment and in number of stores that are closing and stuff like that. I think that plays out. There's always uh, the tipping point in how entrepreneurship and corporate innovation and the way people work um, has not yet been hit. But it's going to get hit because there's so many companies that have just not been willing to um, to adjust, and and the, and their employees have. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, it's it's I, that's a long answer to the question. But I guess my my fundamental belief is that um, we will only see uh, this in ten years down the line as we look back how this actually plays out. Mm. Speaking of entrepreneurship, you have this analogy of entrepreneur entrepreneurship Inc. Mm. In your book, can you explain that and what that is? Yes, I, I, um, okay. So I, I've been doing investing in, in technology for many years now. I started in 1999, believe it or not. So 18 years ago. And I was, I had like the ultimate stars in my eyes. I, and this was when people were building companies that had no economic rationale and people were chasing eyeballs and where the burn rate for companies that had almost no revenues was into the several million dollars a month. And I remember I invested in a company at one point and I remember sort of like knowing these companies were totally 
ridiculous, but also you just sort of you everybody did it and sort of like, well, if I don't do this deal, somebody else will do this deal. And and so I and then I saw in 2000, 2001 when the bubble burst, the pain. And I was personally had to go in and restructure companies and fire people. And it was and I was really just fresh out of college. And so that stuck with me. And I've always been a little bit of a skeptic. And so as I watch um, the entrepreneurial world and what I call Startup Inc. is this idea that there has been a, um, a fundamental glamorization of entrepreneurship where people glamorize the failure, people glamorize the struggle. They talk about eating ramen like it's glamorous, whereas ramen is tasty, but it's very high in sodium. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this movie that I saw that sort of crystallized it all. And I, I did not go to the theater for this, so don't hold it against me. But I saw this movie called The Apprentice with Anne Hathaway, where she is this startup CEO. Oh, I've oh, seen the that. Intern. Yeah, right. The intern. Oh, the intern. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, not The Apprentice. Um, who was the, who's, uh, Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro's yeah. in it. It was a great yeah. movie. It was, it was, it was, it was interesting. <laughs> I think it was a great movie because I think all interns should be like Robert De Niro. That's true. That's the, valid. I think you yeah. took away the finest message. My message, <laughs> my message was like, okay, this person's a startup CEO and lives in a ridiculous brownstone in Brooklyn and has oh. a driver. <laughs> right. And also rides a bike around and like this office space is very expensive and what's the revenue model and and you know what I mean? Like yeah, a very yeah, practical approach to this, yeah, to this movie. Because when I go to my friend's startups and for example, I'm an investor in, in a company called Ipsy, which is a very successful mm-hmm. e-commerce company. Mm-hmm. It's nobody's riding a bike around the office. People work super hard They're They live in a, I mean, they have an, an office that's perfectly fine, but they don't waste any money on anything. And, and so I hate when what I really hate, my pet peeve is when a company raises a big round of capital and then builds this gold-plated office where there's like a foosball um, table at every Check corner. out our culture. Right. All that <laughs> yeah. stuff to me is so – you – a culture should be based on the opportunities that you give people to have impact in an organization, right. not on the availability of um, quinoa-based food at lunch. <laughs> In my opinion, that sounds super like stodgy, but it's that none of that stuff matters. Like it doesn't matter. What matters is creating an organization in which people can excel and then they can make enough money to go and buy their own, you know, wasabi peas when they want them. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. We, uh, we have a term, you call them entrepreneurs in the book. Yeah. Um, and we, there's another term I've heard that I thought was funny is a startup tourist. Wow. When like everybody's like, tourist. they're like, they're touring all the startups and like, oh yeah, this is what, this might be a cool culture. Oh, they have a ping pong table. It's like, uh, quinoa, quinoa bar, quinoa bar. Cool. Um, I think that a lot of people that I talk to who want to start side projects, they say, oh, I'm too busy. I don't even know how you do all these things on the side. And in my mind, I just feel like you can't be too busy. You have to make time. It just means that you're not prioritizing the side project that you want to do. So what do you tell people when they say to you, how do you find all this time? I'm just too busy to do all these other things because I'm so consumed with work. I totally agree, Tina. And I think one of the things that people say to me is that 10% Entrepreneur is really about a time management system, which I don't necessarily agree with because frankly, I don't spend that much time talking about time management because I figure that is a a subject that's been explored so completely by so many other people. What Mm -hmm. new could I say about it? But I do think you're right. What I have noticed with people is that that's an excuse because they don't know what they want to do or because they're not willing to take the risk. And the Mm -hmm. only way to overcome that, there's a couple of things you can do, not just only, there's several, but one is to find a partner. One is to find something that you really love, um, that you really believe in. 
that it doesn't even necessarily feel like a work project to begin with. But those are the ways, and that's why I spend time going through those things in the book because, because yeah, we're all busy, but a lot of the things that we spend our time on are such junk. It's terrible. Like if, think about like let, let's just like pull ourselves out like out of our daily lives and pull, put ourselves back to like fifty years ago and how people live their lives and the amount people worked very hard. They maybe didn't have you know, evening jobs and things, but they worked very hard during the day. And then they had, they basically went home and did nothing for the rest of the night, right? They'd watch Mm -hmm. TV. Now we're quote unquote busy all the time, but have we really used that time impactfully? I mean, how much time do you spend doing stuff that's just consuming information that you have that doesn't do anything for you, right? That's one thing I think we've all audited ourselves after the election about how much, you know, information we're taking in, right? Yeah. And, And when you think about those things, I... I have failed and I've tried and failed to do that, but I basically got rid of cable and I found that it unlocked so much time for me that I could spend on other things. And, and it's, it's a silly little change, mm-hmm. but that alone really changes, changes your life. You just transitioned to Apple TV and now it changed I, your life. I love Apple. <laughs> yes. Sponsored by Apple. <laughs> a lot of the people that we interview in this podcast in the past, whenever they talk about their side projects, and why they do them, it's kind of like this thing that they naturally want to do and that they're like, I just like to stay busy and I feel like I have this motivation to do this thing. Can you learn to be a 10% entrepreneur? Definitely. So that is a question that I always struggle with when I was reading. I remember business school, are entrepreneurs made or are they? is it a learned behavior? And I felt very insecure about that because I was like, well, I don't feel very entrepreneurial and if you can't teach it, then I guess I can, you know, hanging up the boots on that one because I'll just never be able to do it. And I, I am a great example of that. I never felt particularly entrepreneurial after the crisis. I didn't want to be corporate anymore, but I didn't know what that meant or looked like. Even though I had friends who had been entrepreneurs, I mean, some of my friends started companies that everybody here knows. Um, two of my classmates at business school started Guilt Group, and so there, I had been social with people that were entrepreneurs. So it wasn't like you know, I didn't know what it was, but I didn't feel like it was me. And then my friend Marcelo, um, who in the book I talk about, um, we he he sort of dragged me into being a part-time entrepreneur, working with him on something. And and I think that can be very helpful. Is it may be, I mean, we all start life as children being fundamentally naturally entrepreneurial. How many of us had uh I, I used to be the king of the yard sale, like in the summertime. <laughs> I, I was, I would throw a yard sale like every weekend and I did really well with that stuff. And I had a paper out and I you know, did all these little, little things to make money as a kid. And then somehow over the years, the system or my educational background or whatever made me think that I didn't need to do those things or they weren't a good use of my time or whatever. But if you can think back to the, it's sort of like uh, running. If you ever watch a child run and watch an adult run, something changes because the kids run actually in the most natural way possible. But as adults, we get all these affectations that actually cause us injury and stuff. And so a lot of great runners relearn to run as they did when they were a kid. And I think you need to do that with entrepreneurship. Think back to when you didn't care, when there was nothing to lose, and then apply that mindset towards your entrepreneurial activities. I really love the back I think the last chapter of your book where you talk a lot about at the end of the day, it's it could be not really about the money and it's really about enriching yourself and an opportunity to be more fulfilled through doing the things that you actually want to do without risk. So how has being a 10% entrepreneur enriched you? 
Oh, in so many ways, actually. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up because um, there are some people that will tell you straight away that they don't care about the money aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, who knows? But I think the money sort of makes you feel like at a very minimum that your time is being used appropriately. So there's there's just a sort of a queuing benefit to that. But for me, oof, so I, I've done a – so I started out – for me, it was purely just feeling like I was – had momentum in my life again. This is going to sound, I remember this, this is like, now we're getting deep into my psyche. After the financial crisis, I had no idea what to do with my life. I felt very lost and very stuck. There's actually a great book called Getting Unstuck by uh, doc, uh, Dr. Tim Butler at HBS. I bought that book. I couldn't really, it didn't get me unstuck, although it's a great book. And I remember I used to go to uh, yoga like eight times a week because that was the only time I felt unstressed out about my future. And you have to pick this mantra. And my mantra was always like momentum. Because I felt I had no momentum. So I'd be like, momentum, <laughs> right? And, and then a couple years later, when I had like 15 um, side hustles going or 10%, my mantra was like, tranquility. <laughs> because I realized I had achieved the momentum in my life. And it really kind of kickstarted me and brought me lots of opportunities. And so that just feeling like my life was moving forward and that I had built things and then I had financial upside and I had learning was a huge part of it. At the end of the day, this is all about feeling like you're a, you're a um, protagonist in the life you're leading and not sort of just going along every day, sort of like punching the clock, right? And mm-hmm. those types of things, you are a protagonist in, in the world. And so I love that kind of stuff. I thought it was really cool. Um, you know, you, you talked a lot about like um, investing into these projects, um, on, even on a, on a uh, financial level. But in, in your book, you also really empower everybody to, that they can get involved on, into these 10% without money. I think that's really cool because, you know, you say you, there's time, there's money, but there's also uh, your intellect and your, your, um, the assets you have in terms of your expertise. Um, so what would be something that whether or not they had money or not, you would tell somebody who's trying to start a side project right now? Yes. It's so critical that you brought that up because it isn't just about investing your money. Uh, you can do that. And <clears throat> lots of people do that as a way to get started, especially people who may be very busy but have a little capital that they want to allocate. That's great. But one of the things that's happened in the last decade is that the cost of starting entrepreneurial businesses has gone down a lot. Mm-hmm. As a result, new ventures, whether they're your own or somebody else's, don't need capital as much as they need resources in terms of talent and time and and skills. And so uh, if you have a skill that a company would value and that they can give you ownership in their company rather than paying you, which they may not be able to afford to do, then you are well positioned. So that is actually a wide range of things. And it can range from, for example, if you have computer skills, you could create a website, you could run social media, design a marketing campaign, you could help with creating an app. You could, if you're sort of not that person, you could help somebody come up with a business plan. You could help them raise capital. You could help them find um, clients or generate insights. And so it goes everywhere from if you are, for example, uh, a mid-level executive in a particular industry, you could become an advisor to a startup, give them a couple hours here and there, help them to meet the right people that they need to get connected. All the way to something that's like if you are living in a community and you have a friend who's opening a restaurant, you can help them design their menu or help them build, you know, you're, maybe you're a carpenter or an artist, you can help them or a logo designer. All of these things um, are can be transacted for ownership rather than just cash. And that 
that's great because then you get a share of everything that happens from the day that you work on that forward instead of just getting your money and then walking on, going on with the rest of your life. Cool. So the, uh, you would say that main takeaway is basically get involved in something you care about now, right? Yes. Well, as you mentioned, chapter six is the play to your strengths. So figure out what your skills are and then think about people that will value those skills. And I will say, this is the people always say, what do I do next? How do I get going? This is the part where you will need to go out. It's almost like looking for a job. And the first one's the hardest. But once you find the first one, and you're not going to just take the first thing that comes down the line, you know, you want to make sure it's a good one. But once you get the first one, I can tell you, I've seen it over and over again. It's much easier to get, you know, you've built a track record for yourself. Mm. So mm, I recently had a conversation with someone about how kind of, he views work-life balance and he doesn't really view it as work-life balance. He view it as work-life integration. Um, and I feel like a lot of people have trouble with that because, I mean, I personally sometimes have trouble with that too in terms of being really careful at work and not talking too much about my side projects because, I mean, if you know me, it's, it is a big part of my life. But on the flip side, there are people who's like, that is part of who you are and that is part of your asset to work. So how would you approach balancing the work-life integration and, and, and how to talk about it at work? Um, how would you approach that? It's a good question. And it's important because I saw some statistics that something like 85% of millennials uh, are looking for work-life integration. So it's a big topic. And I think it's something that... Uh, our parents didn't really think about because that they just didn't have the ability. There was no technology that allows us to run a Mm -hmm. business out of our pocket, right. With our smartphones and things like that. And so uh, it is, it is an important thing to think about. There's a couple of things that I think um, you got to do. The first is you must absolutely always respect the rules of your employer. So you must, uh, you must know those rules and make sure you don't break them because your day job is the thing that funds everything else you're doing. And so you want to make sure that you always respect that. Number two is you want to do an excellent job at your day job so that you're beyond reproach. Where people get into trouble is when it's very clear that they don't really care and they're just phoning in at the day job. And then, then you know, I, I, you know, if somebody gets into trouble, that's probably pretty justified. And so uh, that those are two basic kind of tenets. But beyond that, I encourage people to be very open about it. And I encourage people to be very smart about bringing the skills that they build in their 10% back into the workplace. And this is interesting because I have seen with very high-powered execs, I've got two stories, one that's in the book, one that is not um, because the person was a bit shy. But one is in the book is about an executive at a big real estate company called CBRE. And he has done over 100 side projects and everybody knows about it. And he, it makes him so much better at his day job because he really knows the market because they're all sort of related to things he does in his day job that, that people want to talk about that. And it actually helps his brand at work as him being a highly entrepreneurial connected guy who just gets all the deals done. That's the A. The B is a person who works in a private equity fund who has done some amazing, amazing side projects that, um, that I will tell you about off air and, uh, (laughs) but also works at this very big company that, that owns some major, they're really well known. And he was telling me that he's very open about it because what's cool is he invests in large companies as a private equity investor. So these are billion dollar companies as a individual, he's investing in much smaller companies, but those companies inform him 
about trends in retail, about what the future is, and connect him to the most sort of innovative minds in the industry. And so when he goes into the office on Monday morning, everybody wants to know what insights he can bring because they're not connected in the same way he is. And I think those are the areas where you can really sort of excel is using your 10%, using your side hustle, using the things you do outside of work to come in with a competitive advantage that makes your company faster, leaner, more agile. If you do that, um, people are going to actually really support what you're doing. And, and the reality is some companies, there will be companies that are either in denial. I had one big, big company that actually wanted to buy a bunch of copies of my book, but couldn't because it was against their corporate policy. And when I told them that I had interviewed many of their employees for the book, they said, yes, we know people are doing this. We just don't talk about it. That lacks confidence. Yeah. That's, uh, have some confidence that people are there for the reason that they're there because they want to be there, but also have confidence allowing them to be more than just working at your company. Yeah, to your point, I mean, you talk about Google's policy. They actually have like a policy that they want you to pursue. I mean, I've seen it in even my role, like I'm involved with um, like Voyager, I'm fully invested in, and uh, but I do Startup Grind once a month and I found so many beneficial, um, not even relationships, but uh, relationships one, but also just like, how we work has learned, I've learned so much through the process, you know? So I think it's something that people should really try to pursue. And uh, even with this podcast, the people we meet are so awesome, interesting, much like yourself. And um, it just makes a lot of sense that you would pursue life that way. I think having a side project is a win, 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 triple win, triple win. Yeah. But it's a, it's a win for life because it just opens up so many opportunities for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I've had, I have been able to meet so many people and do many, so many incredible things through this podcast. Yeah. And so I think that star projects and being a 10% entrepreneur is a win, win, win for everyone. Yeah, I agree with you there. I actually, I find it very inspiring. So, you know, so people tend to rag on millennials, right? I consider myself like a sort of a senior millennial, as it were. <laughs> um, I guess technically I'm, just, I'm sort of in that range. But um, people tend to rag on millennials a lot, especially people in the corporate world. Well, we don't understand them and they, they don't, they're this and they're that. And, they're, and I look at the millennial community, the, the generation, and I see people who are way more flexible, way more experimental, willing to take chances, willing to try new things. And, and they are the, le the bleeding edge of all these 10%. Everybody's doing many different things. And mm -hmm. I frankly think that that population of people, if you can build an economy based on that, I mean, it's partially out of necessity, right? Because you don't have the old past to go for. But this is the, this is the future. And it's a future that is highly responsive to the, to the technology that's changing our lives and to the economic realities of the future. And frankly, I think it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a generation that has responded very well, uh, maybe misunderstood, but why should you as a millennial feel that you can sort of invest yourself in institutions that are not invested in you? Mm -hmm. You just shouldn't. And so go out and build something for yourself. Yes. Do a great job at work. Yes. Earn your paycheck, but also recognize that the world doesn't stop. Uh, when you leave the office. Yeah. And I also think that's a perfect storm because in the past few years, the internet and technology has been so much more advanced and we just have so much access to literally 
anything that you can think of. If I want to learn about this new thing, I can learn it on YouTube and I want to make a website, I can make it on Squarespace or whatever website. So it's just way easier to have access and make something yourself than in the past where if you want to make a website, I mean, I guess you can make it, make it on GeoCities, but it's way harder to do a good job in the things that you actually want to do on the side. So all of the, as you kind of kind of were alluding to, technology has really gotten rid of barriers, lowered costs, and all of us can then avail ourselves of those things to build our 10%. So <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're sort of like, ooh, I don't have the money, it's basically free to do a lot of the things that we're talking about. So don't, mm-hmm. don't let the money hold you back um, because that's not a constraint anymore. So um, we have a question that we always like to ask our guests. What is it that you are obsessed with right now? Yes. Okay. Tina, you, I hope you're, we can, um, we can connect on this platform because I love WeChat. Oh, I use it. <laughs> Do you use it? No, I don't. Yeah. It's very popular in Hong Kong. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I was in China about a month ago and my book is coming out this month in Chinese and um, thank you. And the cover I'll show you guys after it's, it's wild. Um, and I was there working with venture capitalists and, and startups and, and everybody at a meeting. It's so interesting. At the end of the meeting, everybody goes around and you have a QR code. Because basically what WeChat is, it's a combination of like Facebook, Twitter. It's mm-hmm. kind of a messaging platform, but it's more than that because you can have yeah. brand pages. It's literally a, a operating system on top of an operating system. That's yes. how people use it. Yeah, yeah. That, and you can do all this crazy stuff in there and build mm-hmm. businesses inside of it. Yeah. And so, and a lot of 10% entrepreneurs use WeChat to promote their businesses. I, I talk mm-hmm. to some people about that. And so you get a QR code and you can scan people and connect with them. And people connect with everybody. So you you may have a meeting with a person that's completely professional, but that's how you keep in touch. And in fact, all of the messaging that I do with my Chinese colleagues in this project is via WeChat. But there's also incredible emojis. The, emo- the, the selection oh, of emojis yes. is amazing. They have a whole sort of platform. And so anyway, I've just been enjoying using it because I always feel like we get a bit lazy in terms of our interactions with technologies and you must constantly find new platforms, push yourself outside of the UI that you're used to in in the platforms you use and make sure your brain doesn't get sort of stuck in the same kind of loop of of, um, thinking in the same ways. And so WeChat's a different approach. I've learned a ton. Mm -hmm. And it's a great way to learn about Asian culture because people use the technology differently. And so it's been super fun. Yeah, I mean, when you're expanding your book in Asia, I mean, there's WeChat in in China and then there's Kakao and there's Line in Japan. And they're all all specific to those locations, but they're all similar in a sense where that mobile app is, does so much more than just Facebook Messenger or the Facebook app. And I mean, all these different platforms in the US are really trying to crack it and trying to learn from the Asian mobile messaging apps. And I've been I've been reading so much about those apps. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I don't understand why there are some of the basic little things that these apps offer. For example, the QR code scan as a way to friend mm-hmm. somebody. How has it, how do we not have that? Like yeah, Snapchat so, does. Yeah, so a, QR codes is huge like, in Asia because it's not big here. Mm-hmm. It's because in Asia, in order to type in a URL, you can't type in Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. So you would have to type in 
pinyin, which is you spelling out the Chinese word. Oh, and when you actually type it in, it's just like a string of like Z-H-U-G-I. And it's just, it almost looks like nonsense and it's so hard to type it out. So it's way easier for people to scan a QR code than type in a URL. So that's, that's why in the US, we don't really have this problem because we can just go on like, you know, Google or whatever website and just spell it out like how you would normally say it. So that's why it's big in Asia, but not big in the U.S. I would also imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, but you have fewer last names. So you have a lot more people. You have a billion people, 1.2 mm -hmm. billion people with few last names. So there's a lot more people with the same name, too. So you're like, oh, which, you know, which uh, Mulan Zhao are you? And it's like, well, there's 394 in Beijing alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. That was Patrick. Biggest takeaway, be more than your day job. Life doesn't stop when you leave the office. Actualize your 10% by diversifying the way you spend your time, money, and intellectual capital for a more fulfilling life. Shout out to Rick Thomas for mixing and mastering this session. We also want to thank our production manager, Shanna Elise. We want to thank Patrick for coming and speaking with us at the Rise Podcast Studio. Rise is a co-working space and community of the world's brightest thinkers and doers, working together to create the future of financial service. Follow us on Instagram on 5 to 9 Collective. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe. I didn't know that. I didn't know what you were doing there.